Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 39. Jeremiah, chapter 39. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, Isaiah, Jeremiah, 39. And we're going to be reading the entire chapter, uh, plus a little bit more, all the way through 40, verse 2. So Jeremiah 30, verse 1, through chapter 40, sorry, 39, verse 1, through chapter 40, verse 2. Not 30, verse 1. That would be, that would be way too long. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to preach a sermon after that. that. That would be a lot of talking. Jeremiah chapter 39, and as we come... As we approach God's word, let us come before him in prayer. O Lord our God, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the words that you spoke through your prophet Jeremiah, and that you have preserved them for us. That these are your words for us, your people. Just as Jeremiah called the people to repentance and reminded them of your covenant promises, so too we are reminded that we are always to come before you in humility, knowing your grace and your mercy, knowing the great covenant that you have made with us. And Lord, we pray that as we read these difficult words this morning, that you would send us your Holy Spirit to open our eyes and our ears and our minds and our hearts to everything that it is that you would have us see and hear and know and believe. Transform us more and more through your word and spirit, we pray, so that more and more we may look like your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. <coughs> Jeremiah 39, beginning at verse 1, and going through chapter 40, verse 6. The fall of Jerusalem. We've been walking through the book of Jeremiah for like two months now, and we are about to read a major turning point in the history of God's covenant with his people. This story is difficult. This story is amazing. And this story is part of God's work. Jeremiah chapter 39, beginning at verse 1. This is how Jerusalem was taken. In the ninth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, marched against Jerusalem with his whole army and laid siege to it. And on the ninth day of the fourth month of Zedekiah's eleventh year, the city wall was broken through. Then all the officials of the king of Babylon came and took seats in the middle gate. Nergal Sharazer of Samgar, Nebo Sarsakim, a chief officer, Nergal Sharazer, a high official, and all the other officials of the king of Babylon. When Zedekiah, king of Judah, and all the soldiers saw them, they fled. They left the city at night by way of the king's garden, through the gate between the two walls. 
and headed toward the Arabah. But the Babylonian army pursued them and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. They captured him and took him to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, in Riblah, in the land of Hamath, where he pronounced sentence on him. There at Riblah, the king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and killed all the nobles of Judah. Then he put out Zedekiah's eyes and bound him with bronze shackles to take him to Babylon. The Babylonians set fire to the royal palaces and the houses of the people and broke down the walls of Jerusalem. Nebuzaradan, commander of the imperial guard, carried into exile to Babylon the people who remained in the city, along with those who had gone over to him and the rest of the people. But Nebuzaradan, the commander of the guard, left behind in the land of Judah some of the poor people who owned nothing. And at that time, he gave them vineyards and fields. Now Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had given these orders about Jeremiah through Nebuzaradan, commander of the imperial guard. Take him and look after him. Don't harm him, but do for him whatever he asks. So Nebuzaradan, the commander of the guard, Nebuchadnezzar, the chief officer, Nergal-Sherezer, a high official, and all the other officers of the king of Babylon sent and had Jeremiah taken out of the courtyard of the guard. They turned him over to Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, to take him back to his home. And so he remained among his own people. While Jeremiah had been confined in the courtyard of the guard, the word of the Lord came to him. Go and tell Ebed-Melech, the Cushite, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. I am about to fulfill my words against this city through disaster, not prosperity. At that time, they will be fulfilled before your eyes. But I will rescue you on that day, declares the Lord. You will not be handed over to those you fear. I will save you. You will not fall by the sword, but will escape with your life, because you trust in me, declares the Lord. The word came to Jeremiah from the Lord after Nebuzaradan, commander of the imperial guard, had released him at Ramah. He had found Jeremiah bound in chains among all the captives from Jerusalem and Judah who were being carried to exile in Babylon. When the commander of the guard found Jeremiah, he said to him, The Lord, your God, decreed this disaster for this place. And now the Lord has brought it about. He has done exactly what he said he would. All this happened because you people sinned against the Lord and did not obey him. But today I am freeing you from the chains on your wrists. Come with me to Babylon, if you like, and I will look after you. But if you do not want to, then don't. Look, the whole country lies before you. Go wherever you please. 
But before Jeremiah turned to go, Nebuzaradan answered, or asked, added, sorry, ah, all these A words. Nebuzaradan added, Go back to Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, whom the king of Babylon has appointed over the towns of Judah, and live with him among the people. Or go anywhere else you please. Then the commander gave him provisions and a present, and let him go. So Jeremiah went to Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, at Mizpah, and stayed with him among the people who were left behind in the land. This is the word of the Lord. You know, it's funny, I practiced this reading this passage like a dozen times before this service because there's so many weird names in it. And the word that I stumble over is added. <laughs> oh well. Sisters and brothers in our Lord Jesus Christ, as we've been walking through the book of Jeremiah these last two months, one theme has carried through. Through all the stories of Jeremiah the prophet, all the stories of the kings of Judah and the kings of Egypt and the kings of Babylon, all these stories of God reaching out to his people in love, all these stories of God's people rejecting his love, one theme has woven its way through it all. The theme of covenant. At its heart, the book of Jeremiah is a book about covenant. Covenant is how God relates to his people. From the very beginning, God covenanted with Noah and his family that he would be their God and they would be his people. God covenanted with Abraham and Sarah that he would be their God and the God of their descendants after them. To give them a land where they would prosper and to make their children as numerous as the stars in the sky to bless the whole world through them. God covenanted with Moses and the people of Israel at the mountain of Sinai that he would be their God and they would be his people. And he gave them the law so that they might live holy lives so that they might enjoy his presence among them. God covenanted with David that he would be his God and that his descendants would sit forever on the throne of Israel. Our God is a covenant God, a relational God. And the book of Jeremiah is a testament to God's faithfulness to the covenant, to his profound desire to live in right relationship with his people. Even when God's people turn away time and time again, rejecting the covenant, rejecting his love, rejecting his promises, still God is faithful. God is always faithful, even when his people are not. And when God's people are not faithful, it breaks his heart. But even then, even in the face of rejection, scorn, shame, God does not abandon his people. Even though God's people rebel against him and reject him, God remains devoted to them. But a covenant cuts both ways, like a double-edged sword. Throughout this book, Jeremiah has been trying to get God's people to see 
that any good relationship requires both sides to listen and respond. Both sides listen and respond. And while God has always listened and responded to Israel, they have stopped listening and responding to him. And things have gotten to the point where God is ready to invoke the covenant curses, to take away the signs of the covenant that have been the pride of Israel, the temple, the land, and the monarchy. These symbols of God's presence and care over his people will be taken away. And in this passage, that's exactly what we see. Last Sunday, we had a little bit of a history lesson, tracing out the political and military history from the beginning of Jeremiah's ministry up until the time where he writes down his prophecies on the scroll. And so last Sunday, we learned about King Josiah, the eight-year-old king who discovered the book of the law and called God's people to repentance, who died in battle against the Egyptians. We learned about Josiah's son, Jehoahaz, who was anointed king of Judah when his father died, who only reigned for three short months before the pharaoh of Egypt deposed him and appointed his brother Jehoiakim in his place. And we learned how Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, laid siege to Jerusalem and how Jehoiakim, rather than staying loyal to the Egyptians who he was in alliance with, switched sides to join Babylon and allowed Israel, allowed Judah and Jerusalem to become a vassal kingdom to the Babylonian Empire and gave Nebuchadnezzar gifts from the royal treasury, holy artifacts from the temple, and some of the nobles of Jerusalem as a peace offering, with Judah as a vassal kingdom to Babylon. And that's where we found ourselves last Sunday, with Judah as a vassal kingdom to Babylon, and Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, as king of Jerusalem. But this arrangement doesn't last very long. Because Egypt is very uncomfortable with the fact that Babylon controls Jerusalem, which is so close to Egypt. And so Egypt's armies press north toward Judah, and Jehoiakim, being the opportunist that he is, switches sides again. And so Nebuchadnezzar, to no one's surprise, sends down his armies to take back Jerusalem, and he executes Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim's son, Jehoiachim, is anointed as king in Jerusalem, but Nebuchadnezzar is uncomfortable with this arrangement because he thinks that Jehoiachin might try to avenge his father. And so he has his entire family, together with most of the leadership of Jerusalem, exiled to Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar installs Zedekiah as king in Jerusalem. King Josiah's youngest son, Jehoiakim's younger brother, Jehoiachin's uncle, Zedekiah, is installed as the king of Jerusalem. And Nebuchadnezzar's idea here is that basically Zedekiah will be a puppet who does what he commands. Zedekiah rules in Jerusalem for 11 years, as we see from this passage today. He's king in Jerusalem for 11 years. 
And in the ninth year of his reign, he's an opportunist. And so he switches sides to join Egypt, just like his brother did, just like his other brother did. And guess what happened? Nebuchadnezzar sent his armies to take back Jerusalem. And this time, Nebuchadnezzar was just done with the whole business. Nebuchadnezzar leads his armies down with Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, leads the Babylonian armies to lay siege against Jerusalem. And this siege lasts for almost two years, from the, from the tenth month of Zedekiah's ninth year as king to the fourth month of his eleventh year as king. On the ninth day of the fourth month of Zedekiah's eleventh year as king, the city wall is breached, and the Babylonian forces enter Jerusalem and set themselves up in the city gate as the rulers of Judah. They destroyed the temple, they slaughtered the family of King Zedekiah and his officers, and they took all the people of Judah into exile, leaving only the poor in the land. It's impossible to overemphasize just how devastating this was for the people of Israel. Israel, even though they hadn't lived like it, had always been proud of the fact that they were God's special people. And they had the signs of the covenant to prove it. They had the land, the beachhead of the great redemption story that God was going to bring to the whole world. They had the temple, the presence of God, the one true God living among them, dwelling in their city. And they had the king, God's great promise to David that his descendants would rule over God's people forever, a symbol, ultimately, of God's sovereign power over his people, God's sovereign care for his people. Even though God's people rejected the covenant, rejected God's promises, rejected even God himself, they still held on to these covenant signs as central to their identity as a people, central to who they were as a nation. The land, the temple, and the king these three things were what made Israel, Israel. And these three things are what God takes away from them as a punishment for their sins. The temple is destroyed, the line of kings is ended, and the people are exiled from the land. And it's kind of an ironic thing, because in the face of it all, while God's people are devastated and feel like God has totally abandoned them, the Babylonians get it. And this is not a normal thing for a conqueror to say to a people that they've conquered in the ancient Middle East. Usually, in the ancient Near East, when one nation conquers another, it's viewed as a victory of their God over that nation's God. Nebo, the god of Babylon, defeats Yahweh, the god of Jerusalem. That's how people would have understood it. Nebo defeats Yahweh. Babylon defeats Jerusalem. 
That's how people would have understood it. That's probably how God's people understood it. But in chapter 40, Nebuzaradan, whose name means the god Nebo gives many blessings. That's what his name means. He says very plainly, the Lord, Yahweh, your God, decreed this disaster for this place. And now the Lord, Yahweh, has brought it about, just as he said he would do. All this happened because you people sinned against the Lord, Yahweh. Because you did not keep his covenant did not obey him. Nebuzaradan, whose name means Nebo gives many blessings, says that the fall of Jerusalem is not the work of Nebo, says that the fall of Jerusalem is not the work of Babylon's God. Babylon's God has no power here. The fall of Jerusalem is the work of Yahweh. The fall of Jerusalem is the work of Israel's God. Because his people had not kept covenant and sinned against the Lord, God's own people don't get it. But Babylon does. God's people have broken the covenant, and so God is taking away the signs of the covenant, the land, the temple, and the king. Jerusalem falls, and God's people live in exile. But even in the face of this devastation, even in the face of this destruction, there's, there's hope. Even in the context of the fall of Jerusalem, God keeps his promises. We read that Nebuzaradan leaves the poor in the land and gives them fields and vineyards, fulfilling God's great promise to bring justice for those whom God's people had rejected. Even as God's people are led into exile, the poor who have long been deprived of their ancestral lands, who have been forced to live as wanderers and beggars, are restored. They're lifted up to their rightful place in the covenant. They are given land to work. They're promised to harvest. In the chapters that follow, we read that God's people who had fled the kingdom of Judah to the neighboring kingdoms of Edom, Moab, and Ammon return to Judah to live there and to work the land. And even to those who do go into exile, God gives the promise that he will bless them and that in time they will return. God punishes his people for their sins in this chapter, but it is not a, a punishment without distinction. Those who abused their power and rejected the covenant are led into exile. 
those who cast out the poor from their lands and failed to care for those who had nothing are punished. But the poor, who had been forced out of God's covenant by those in power, are restored. They are given land. They are given the symbol of God's covenant promise to his people, a remnant to care for the land until God's people come back, until God restores his people. And God does restore his people, but not in the way that they expect. The poor worked the land of Judah and Israel for 70 years until Cyrus, king of Persia, conquered Babylon and allowed the exiles to return, set the prisoner free. Then the Babylonian Jews came back and reclaimed the land from the poor Israelites who were living there. They called them Samaritans. The newly returned Babylonian Jews retook Jerusalem, they rebuilt the temple, they rebuilt the wall, the city walls under Ezra and Nehemiah, but the presence of God never came back to the temple. The presence of God never came back until it did. The presence of God came in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, born of the Virgin Mary. He came to Jerusalem, and he went into the temple, calling God's people back to the covenant, back to their purpose, back to their calling to care for the poor, the outcasts, the foreigner, the orphan the widow. And again, he was rejected. He was cast out. He was beaten. He was mocked. He was tried. He was executed. He bore the curse. And through it, he poured out his blessings. This is the great mystery of our faith. That Jesus Christ took on the punishment that we deserve because of our sins. We deserve exile. But he chose exile from heaven to bring us back to him. We deserve death. But he chose death so that we might have new life. We deserve God's wrath. But he chose God's wrath to give us his blessing. He left his throne in heaven to reconcile heaven and earth. He became poor that we might know the riches of God's grace. He was bound that we might be set free. He was oppressed that we might be liberated. He was declared guilty that we might be declared innocent. He was born of a virgin that we might be born again as children of God. This 
is the truth of our faith. We deserve the punishment that's described in these chapters. But Christ takes it upon himself, takes it all upon himself to forgive our sins so that we may live in his presence. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said. Let's pray. O Lord our God, even in the face of punishment, you keep your promises. Even through disaster, you protect your people and bring about your glory. O Lord our God, we thank you for this wondrous love that you have shown us. We thank you for this amazing grace that you have poured out on us. We thank you and we praise your name because you give sight to the blind, you set the captives free, you raise the dead to life, and you make the broken heart whole. And so, together with your people throughout all time and all places, we praise your holy name for the great things that you have accomplished for us in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. <laughs>